So we are still in Acts, seeing as how we just started it last week. And last week we spent some time talking about the book of Acts in relation to the rest of the Bible. And we got as far as the upper room on Pentecost or Shavuot when the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples up there. One of the things that I sort of said at the end but may not have emphasized is this is a reenactment of the giving of the Torah at Sinai. At Sinai you had the mountain and you had God on top of the mountain and you had fire that would come down on top of the mountain and from there God would speak his word and Moses would go up the mountain, pick up the Torah and then come back down. Here you have fire coming down from the ceiling, if you will, landing on the people. You have the Holy Spirit landing on them, which causes all of them to prophesy or to speak the gospel in some other tongue. And as we go on, we'll find that there are several other links back to Sinai at this incident. But sort of keep that in mind as we go along. So we're in Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. Actually pick it up at 12. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So the Holy Spirit has landed on these disciples. They're all speaking the gospel in languages that are understood by people in their native language. And as I said last time, the signature thing when the Holy Spirit falls on someone is everybody around him knows that that's happened. For example, the first instance that I know of is where the Spirit fell on the 70 in the camp when Moses chose the 70 elders and we had Eldad and Medad that had been chosen but were not in the group and they got the Holy Spirit on them and everybody around them said, whoa, those guys are prophesying. Same thing happens to Saul when he gets the Holy Spirit on him. Same thing will happen to Cornelius' Romans when the Spirit falls on them. So the idea that people around them who did not get the Holy Spirit would know instantly that something had happened is consistent throughout Scripture. So anyway, you have some that say, well, they're just babbling and drunk. So now Peter kicks in in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So it would be nine o'clock in the morning. I believe the day starts at six in the morning. And so the third hour is nine. So, 15 again. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on many male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, several things about that. 
last week on my Facebook page, I posted a study in Hebrews, and some guy commented on it and said, uh, what's your opinion on the fact, he said it's a fact, that the writer of Hebrews changed the scripture to correspond to his theology. So let me pick it up in Hebrews 8, 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So the business, I showed no concern for them, is not in the Hebrew text. And if you go back to the Hebrew text, which is Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So, though I was their husband is different than I will show no concern for them. So, there's a difference in translation and a difference in sense. So the guy, and I don't know him, he's a random commentator, and just the first time I've ever seen him, I have no idea what his agenda was, but I'm sort of inferring that he's somebody who's anti-New Testament. And the reason I say that is I was reading a guy on Aish, where a guy was a Baptist minister, and discovered that Stephen's speech in the book of Acts was different than what the Torah said. And Stephen in the book of Acts says that Sarah was buried in Shechem. Well, Sarah was not buried in Shechem. Sarah is buried in Hebron. And that opened his eyes to the falseness of the New Testament and he became a rabbinic Jew. And the reason I'm going through this long kabuki dance here is you're going to find differences in Scripture in the New Testament and the book of Acts that do not track with what you read in the Torah. And this one that I wrote about Joel is one such place, as is the place that I showed you in Hebrews where they're quoting the New Covenant, and we'll have the case where Stephen, as I say, as he's about to be stoned, says that Sarah is buried in Shechem. And so you're going to find all these discrepancies in the New Testament from the Old. And what I want to do is explain what's going on so that you understand what's happening. In the case of the Hebrews quotation, the Hebrews quotation is from the Septuagint, which most of you know is a Greek translation of the Tanakh that was made by the Jews. The article I read said it was substantially complete by about 132 BC. So the idea that these guys in the book of Acts would have been reading the scriptures in Greek and that would have been the version that they quoted from. With the Septuagint, the problem is not with the New Testament in that case. Now here we have in Joel, there's a reversal. It says, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see vision, your old men shall dream dreams. There's a reversal there. In Joel, it's your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. So the order is reversed. In the case of all of these, what is going on is Peter is quoting scripture on the fly. Anybody ever heard me quote scripture on the fly? And Stephen's quoting on the fly was as he was about to be stoned. 
So what I am asserting here is that the record in the book of Acts is in fact an accurate record of what was said as opposed to going back and cleaning it up. To, well, wait a minute, that isn't the way it's said in Joel, the order is reversed here, so we need to reverse it. And in the case of Hebrews, as I say, they're quoting from the Septuagint instead of from the Masoretic text. So there are logical explanations for all of these things. This is just the first one in the book of Acts right here, which is why I'm making a big deal here. As we hit the other ones, I'll show those to you too. And I, I just showed you one in Hebrews. There are several of them. And I attribute that to people quoting scripture on the fly from memory. As I say, you guys have been in here long enough and you've heard me quote scripture and I paraphrase and I get things out of order and all that kind of stuff. And Peter is not a rabbi. He is not a biblical scholar. He is a fisherman who has been taught by Yeshua and has probably read the scriptures in, in the Greek Septuagint. So the idea that there are slips of the tongue, if you will, as scripture gets quoted here in the book of Acts, I think is no big deal. Furthermore, to go back to my commentator friend that questioned the book of Hebrews, I don't see any dishonesty there on the part of the writer of the book of Hebrews. He is simply quoting from a different version of scripture. And as, as I said in my reply to this guy, I'm not qualified to referee between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. I'm just not. But the fact that this guy quoted from the Septuagint instead of from the Masoretic text is not uh, an indication that he has some theological agenda that is somehow nefarious. From my perspective, the fumble tongue that gets recorded here in Acts, where Peter misquotes Joel, he doesn't misquote it in substance, he simply transposes two lines. And Stephen misquotes scripture. That indicates to me that the book of Acts is a faithful transcription of what actually happened. As opposed to somebody saying, all right, I'm going to quote here from Joel chapter 228 through whatever, and the guy then scurries back to his Bible and copies it all down. What this reads like is he was actually listening to what Peter said and wrote down what Peter said, errors and all. That may have been longer than you wanted, but you've got it. So anyway, Peter is quoting from Joel, and it's interesting because what happened at the crucifixion? Remember the events at the crucifixion when Yeshua died? You had darkness in the afternoon. You had the temple rent and so forth. So the idea of the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So some of these things have clearly happened at the crucifixion, and some of them, as Peter says, the prophesying and dreaming dreams and so forth is happening right now. And what I'm going to suggest to you is one of the things that happens in Scripture is you will have partial fulfillments of prophecy several times. So the fact that the Holy Spirit landed on people and people prophesied and will dream dreams and see visions and so forth, here doesn't mean that it won't happen again. 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Yeshua of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, 
This Yeshua, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. That's a quote from Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 8 is where that quote starts. That goes to the end of the psalm. Now, Peter is going to make an argument based on that, and we'll get into that in just a minute. I want to back up and make note of one thing. Peter is appealing to the fact that they know that Yeshua was crucified, that they know he was raised from the dead, and that they had seen him after the resurrection. So the first thing he's doing is he's appealing to them as eyewitnesses. In other words, these things that I am telling you, you yourselves are witnesses of. The second thing is that this phrase that just sort of gets thrown in there is killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, one of the things that they did in order to convict Yeshua is they brought in false witnesses. So the idea then of the fact that his trial and execution was illegal is at a point that he just sort of makes in passing. So then he quotes David, and specifically David talks about, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. So the question that Peter is going to put to them, and Peter is going to answer, is whose soul are we talking about when David says, my soul? Let me read it for you again. It's in verse 24. And it's also in Psalm 16:10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So the question is, who is speaking there in the first person? So now what's going to happen is Peter is going to proceed to answer that question. But that's the nub of the argument that he's bringing up here. He's appealing to the Psalms, which everybody agrees is Scripture. And he's saying, David wrote this, so who's he talking about? Now, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So what he's saying there is David cannot be speaking about himself, because we know that David is dead and buried, and you can see his tomb. You can walk down the street there and look at his tomb. So the argument then is, when David is speaking here, he is not speaking of himself when he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. David is not speaking of himself there. He couldn't be, because David is dead and buried. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would see one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So what Peter is saying there is David was a prophet. And the psalm 
16, where he's talking about here, is not talking about himself. I mean, we can all see that. Therefore, he must have been talking about the Messiah. Verse 32. This Yeshua, God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Again, appealing to the fact that everybody there has seen the resident Yeshua. 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the last one is a quote from Psalm 110. And for those of you who have been in a Hebrew study with me, you know that the book of Hebrews is a commentary on Psalm 110. So the entirety of the book of Hebrews is commentary on Psalm 110. And that's a study for another time. But what Peter is saying here is that Yeshua was raised from the dead, he is exalted, he is at the right hand of God, and he did receive from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Yeshua has poured out the Holy Spirit on this group of people, and you yourselves are now witnesses that the Holy Spirit has landed on these people. And the Holy Spirit was poured out by Yeshua because God gave Yeshua the promise that he would give him the Holy Spirit, and Yeshua did not see corruption because you all saw him raised from the dead and walking around with skin on. It appeals entirely to their being witnesses of these events, which takes us back to the thing that I said where this misquotation of Scripture that Peter made is just left there, which gives me confidence that whoever wrote this book is doing a faithful report of what was actually said and done, which therefore gives me confidence that the events here are in fact correct. Actually, let's go to Psalm 110. It's a short one. So Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Yeshua does do that. It's cited in Matthew 22:44, Mark 12:36, Luke 20:42 and 43. And of course, here in Acts. So yes, Yeshua does use that as an argument with the Pharisees. So I'll go back to Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Yeshua asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer a word. So this is by way of giving them a riddle in order to avoid answering a question of theirs. They asked him, By whose authority are you doing this? And he says, I'll tell you whose authority I'm under if you can answer this question. And of course they can't. Because the normal way of patrimony is that the father does not call the son Lord. So the idea that David is calling his son, the Messiah, Lord, indicates that there's something else going on. 
But anyway, did, did you all understand the point I was making about reliability of the transcription? That to me, I think, is important. These human errors that get made in the recitation of scripture and so forth are an indicator to me that somebody has not gone back and said, oh, wait a minute, that isn't what scripture says and rearranged stuff. It is recorded as it was spoken and people make mistakes when they speak. So where am I here? I think I'm down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Yeshua, whom you crucified. So we're saying two things. One, he is Lord. And how is he Lord? By being David's son. By being a descendant of the king. And God has said, you're the king. So he has made him Lord as well as Messiah, the anointed one. So there's two different things. And this Yeshua, whom you crucified. 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Yeshua Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. For those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is an echo back to Sinai. How many people did the Levites slay during the incident of the golden calf? 3,000. So at the golden calf, when the Levites go through the camp at Moses' behest, and they slay everybody who is in fact worshiping the golden calf, as opposed to those who are duped, there are 3,000 that are killed. Here we now have 3,000 that are saved. So what I'm saying to you is, this whole vignette that we're talking about all goes back to Sinai. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, a couple of things here. Thing one, notice that they did not abandon the temple. They kept going to the temple where the daily sacrifices were taking place and all that. For those of you who have spent a lot of time in Sunday church, one of the things that you will have run across is the idea that the sacrificial system is no longer valid. These people did not think so. These people participated in the temple activity. I mean, they weren't Levites, so they didn't do the actual sacrifices, but they showed up at the regular times for prayer when sacrifices were made at the temple. When Paul is arrested and carted off to Rome, he is on his way to the temple to sacrifice. He needs to clear a Nazarite vow. 
And the Torah says that in order to clear a Nazarite vow, you have to sacrifice a lamb. So he is on his way to sacrifice at the temple when he is arrested and sent off to Rome. So none of these early apostles had any problem whatsoever with the temple rituals or sacrifices. They are not done away with. And when the temple gets reconstructed, they will start up again, and that's perfectly fine. It is not an insult to the blood of Yeshua. It is not a problem. It's the way God does business with Israel. It's perfectly acceptable. So the venue for earthly sacrifice has been destroyed. Therefore, the sacrifices have stopped. But the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel both say that they will start up again. And that could happen any time. And when they do, it's cool, not a problem. Because scripture says it'll happen. Second thing is this business of socialism, where everybody throws anything into one pot and they all partake. That doesn't work. Now, this is genealogy. This is not scripture. I think what was going on is they were expecting the kingdom to be reestablished at any moment. And they were living in a commune. And you can live in a commune for a little while. It will work for a short time. But what happens with a commune is very quickly some people discover, well, I get just as much as everybody else whether I work or not. So the Mayflower, for example, the Mayflower Compact with the pilgrims mirrored this passage in Acts. They were a religious order. They were coming here for purposes of being able to worship God in the way they thought was right. On the Mayflower, they put together a compact which mirrors this paragraph here in Acts, and they nearly starved to death. Until Bradford said, this isn't working, and let families have their own plot of land that they could work and keep the produce of that land for their own benefit. They could sell it or they could eat it or whatever. But when they were working for themselves, the place prospered when they were organized according to Acts chapter 2 here, they nearly starved. From that, I infer, and this is where the genealogy comes in, that these people are expecting Yeshua to come back at any moment. So I'm now in Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. This is the afternoon sacrifice. The hour of prayer is also the afternoon sacrifice. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Yeshua Messiah of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 11. 
While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Yeshua, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Yeshua has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed to you, Yeshua, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. 22. Moses said, The Lord will rise up for you a prophet, like me, from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Ding, ding, ding. This is another change from what it says in the Old Testament. The Old Testament does not say that the one who doesn't listen to him will be destroyed from the people. What it says is, God will require it of him, whatever that means. Or God will hold him responsible. It doesn't say he'll be destroyed. And it isn't quite the same in the Septuagint, but the Septuagint is closer to this sense. But again, this is another one of those things where the quotation from the Torah is different in the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. So this is one of those things that you should be aware of. So 23 again. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Back up now. Bunch of stuff in here. First off, healings. You will find denominations in the body of Christ who say that open miracles and healings were for then and they are not for now. I do not agree with that. And this is Johnnyology, do with this whatever you like. I am of the opinion that their experience with Messiah was so new and dramatic that they were in fact able to have the power of God flow through them freely. As we get farther from that and we live in exile and we live in a place where that is highly skeptical of the supernatural, it becomes harder and harder for even people who do believe to have God work through them. Now, having said that, I am sure you have all been in churches where people have been healed. I have personally participated in healings myself. I think the most fun couple that I have participated in 
is there was a, a lady that came to me and said, God told me to come, have you lay hands on me, I'd have migraines. Laid hands on her, and she hasn't had one since that I know of. And she hadn't had one since while I still kept track of her. And then another one, they had a little British gal who had a lump in her breast. And we laid hand on her and prayed, and she said the next morning it felt like a fist had clenched in my chest, and it's gone. So the idea that these things are still entirely possible is true. The problem that we have is we live in a secular world. We live in a place where we are constantly bombarded by doubt, and it's really hard to have God flow through you when you've got all these conflicts around you. These guys didn't have that problem. So you see God's power flowing through them with great strength, whereas in our times it sometimes really flows strongly and sometimes doesn't flow at all and it goes back and forth. Uh, I think that's just a function of us being human and not having the clear connection to God that God wishes we did have. But I am not one who is of the opinion that these things are for some other time. I do not find scriptural support for that. There's nothing in scripture that says that those are only during the apostolic age. And I myself personally have seen miraculous healings. I don't see any problem with any of this stuff still being applicable. And if somebody comes to you for prayer, you want to pray boldly. What you don't want to do is say, oh God, if it be your will, please heal this poor wretch. But if nothing happens, it isn't my fault. What you want to do is you want to look at him and say, in the name of Yeshua, you be healed. And as I say, if he drops dead, step over the corpse and go on to the next one. Because what happens after you say that is not your problem. What happens after you say that, that's up to God. But if you don't say it, nothing will happen. If you don't step up and boldly say what the scripture says to say, then nothing will happen. If nothing happens when you boldly say what Scripture says, move on and do it again. Your job is to do what God says to do. Your job is not to worry about results. And what happens with most people is they pull their punches because they don't want to look foolish in front of other people. Look at that fruitcake standing there with oil all over his hands and this poor sod has just dropped dead at his feet. Okay, so what? Step over the corpse and go on to the next one. Because what God is calling you to do is what he says to do. Not what you think will work. Or not what you're afraid won't work. And what you'll find is God will surprise you. And things will happen. By the way, as you do this, you need to be aware of your mouth. I prayed for someone and... All of a sudden, he felt better. He says, I can't believe this. And <laughs> so watch what you say, because the stuff that comes out of your mouth is really powerful. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.